Big Better Best Books with authors, readers, and other endangered species. I'm your guide, Katerina Valentin. Come and join us. So welcome to this episode of Big Better Best Books podcast. And today I have one of my favorite authors, Anne Maxwell, with me. She has written a book called Would You Teach a Fish to Climb a Tree? Which is an awesome title, <laughs> just as a start. Even if the book was anything else, just the title makes me smile. And this book has now been translated into how many languages? It is being translated this year into six languages. Yeah. French, German, Spanish, Portuguese, Turkish, and then Chinese just got added. Oh, that's wonderful. Because yeah. this book, actually, the undertitle is A Different Take on Kids with ADD, ADHD, OCD, and Autism. And so, Anne, would you, like, before we even go into the book, would you just quickly introduce yourself, like your background? What What is it that made you even start writing this book? So the title of the book comes from a quote by Albert Einstein, which is, Everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. And as a therapist who's worked with kids and families for, oh God, almost 30 years at this point, this was so descriptive of so many of the kids that I work with who were made so wrong because they were fish. They didn't fit in. They were a little different. There they were, a fish on land and told that they were stupid because they didn't know how to climb a tree, but they knew how to do so many other things. And I just loved it. So Gary called me one day and he said, I've been trying to get this book written for a long time. Will you help me out? And I said, yes. And so he and Dane had... I just want to insert. So Gary and Dane, we've talked about access consciousness a lot on this okay, podcast. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, no, don't worry. But if you don't know, so... Anne and I both uh, work in this modality called Access Consciousness, and the founder of Access Consciousness, Gary Douglas, and then his co-creator is Dane here. Now back to yes, Anne. Yes, Dr. Dane here. And so the three of us are professionals that come at this topic of people being different, and in this case specifically kids being different, from three different angles, from three different professional experiences and personal experiences. And so that's really what the book is. It's, a, it's the combination of all that. And when Gary asked me if I would help them finish the book, what I did was I took stories from the kids that I've worked with over the years and wove them into what had been created before. I'm a therapist. I was traditionally trained by the medical community. And the training that I got was primarily behavioral and cognitive and the precepts for that training were that if you can change some somebody's thoughts and you can change their behaviors, so then they get fixed so that they can <laughs> then fit into the world the way the world is. That had never been particularly successful with practically any kid, but especially these kids. And when I discovered Access Consciousness now almost 10 years ago, Gary specifically talked about a lot of the underlying issues that many in the medical field talk about. But unlike them, he actually has tools that work and that create so much change. So 
I would say one of the, my favorite parts of the book is really how you take those tools uh-huh. that you talk about and how you describe how they, the examples from your own experience right. and how you use them in your own experience. Because I so agree this, this quote from Einstein is one of my favorite quotes. And I, all my life, I would say, <laughs> always felt like a fish on land (laughs) and I spent so much time trying to fit in and trying to climb that dawn tree that I didn't really know why I was even climbing. I was like, what, what, what I have to get up that tree? Why? I mean, you know, I could just go swimming in the ocean instead. So would you talk a little bit how, if we even go a little bit beyond the book, but how, what occurred when you started to introduce these tools in your practice? I first took a class from Gary Douglas. I think it was in 2010 in Denver. He came and Dane was with him. And he did at that point what was called a level two and three class. And one of the things that he said in there when he was talking about these kids was what if there's nothing wrong with them? What if they're just different? And my entire clinical caseload just flashed in front of my, just just pictures of all these kids. And the way he presented it was that there really wasn't anything wrong with them, that they didn't need to be fixed, and that they just required different, quote, handling or managing or handling, really. And it made so much sense to me. And it created instantaneously such a, it's almost like a seismic shift in my practice because it gave me permission to practice the way I had always been practicing, but pretty much had hidden from everybody, including <laughs> myself, to actually come out with it and and to and to be able to talk about it. What they gave me was the words to describe what I'd already always known and what I was actually already doing, but in a quiet kind of way. And it's not that I then went in everybody's face, but I actually had tools to give to people that Hmm. worked, right? So even though I worked in these places that were behavioral and cognitive, the reason that the kids got better was because of the way I was with them, right? It was that, and known in the clinical trade as the relationship, because I had a great relationship with them, but it was not like any other therapeutic relationship or clinical relationship, you know? So is it about, um, let me tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? Yes, I would love that. Okay. Yeah. So I worked in a residential treatment center, which is the last stop for kids before they go either into long-term psychiatric care or long-term division of youth services, lockups, jails, like that kind of stuff. These are the kids who really didn't fit in and who had, quote, failed in every other area. And back in the day, back in the 90s when I was there, the age range was anywhere from three, which was pretty young, all the way up to 18. And my specialty was the littles, the little ones. And so admissions called me one day and said, we've got one for you. And I said, cool. And I went down. It was a, There was a stack that was maybe two, mm-hmm. two three inches. I don't yeah. know how many centimeters that is. A decimeter. A decimeter. And <laughs> ten, ten centimeters. Ten centimeters. Yeah. Okay. Thick. And it was a little girl. She made no eye contact. Um, and she, they said, she won't talk. She's not uttering a word. So we can't interview her. So she's yours. She's a skinny little thing, like would blow away in a, with, with a gust of wind. She was six years old, hideously sexually and physically abused by every male in her extended 
and and non-intact Hispanic family. And that was it. So there were these rules about how I was supposed to see kids. I could see them once a week. Well, that clearly wasn't going to work with her. And she wouldn't talk and she wouldn't make eye contact. So I made sure that she didn't have these treatment goals to make eye contact and to speak. Like Mm. I knocked that right off the table. I said, no, no, we're not doing that. And so I saw her every day Mm. and I would go into the classroom and I would say hi. And she would turn her head away from me and I'd hold out my hand and she wouldn't take it. And I'd turn around with my hand out and walk out of the room and she would follow me. And we would walk around the campus, which at that point was filled with fields and great places to walk and stuff like that. And I would point things out to her. And once in a while, she would smile. And then she started pointing things out to me. And then, and then, and then she started making eye contact. And then she started talking and and all of that. And I never made her wrong for not talking. And I never made her wrong for behaving the way she behaved. I knew that she was doing it because it had worked for whatever reason it was working for her. And over time, she started talking, she started putting on weight, I, she would giggle and laugh, she, we had these great <laughs> conversations, we created things together. And then one day, the mental health workers called me and said, when we came into their unit, there was a little boy who was in bed with her. <laughs> And now she won't talk. <laughs> so Aww. I know. And so I went and I saw her and she's back to the way she first was, right? No eye contact, closed off, eyes on the ground, shoulders punched. And I said, I just want you to know one thing. I want to ask you a question. Did you invite that little boy into your room? And she said, no. And I said, it's really okay for you to say no. <laughs> so she sort of came back again and no punishment, no nothing. And then about two weeks later, the mental health staff called me and said, I got to tell you, they were all lined up, getting ready to go somewhere. And I turned around and she was screaming at the top of her lungs because somebody had touched her when she didn't want them to touch. And it was, and it just made me laugh. It was like, you know, she was learning how to say no, and she just needed to a little bit of polish on it. But, but like that, like this whole idea of, I didn't, I didn't, turn her history into any kind of trauma and drama. When that little boy ended up in her bed, I didn't think anything badly about her. I asked her questions. Or him. Or him. Yeah, exactly. And and then when she started learning how to say no, she was not punished for screaming at the top of her lungs and pushing the kid across the, the thing. She was like congratulated for saying no and told that she needed to learn how to do it a little differently. But, you know, like that. No, I do. And I, I keep thinking... So you know that we've had two of these children's books out, the Unicorn. So I've talked about and, the Unicorn book here before, but we right. just published another one. was called the the Baby Dragon Manifesto. Right. And I was looking at that the other day, and people love both books. And I, for me, both books are required. Kids are, are unicorns, right. and they are dragons. And yeah. the kids that are not allowed to be both, those are the kids that don't know how to say no. Really, a kid, when they're born, maybe we could, you know, I think the unicorn book's a great gift for a newborn kid right. to, like, empowering a being. But the dragon book is required. When they turn two, they need to become dragons right. and learn how to say no and be willing to say it. And and I'm looking at this for what you're, this empowering it's kind of right, like you're using, yeah, you're using the tools to empower her right. to find 
her voice. What she, her voice, what she is, what she truly is required to be at the moment to be her, whatever that looks like. You know, one of the things that I used to say to the staff and that I definitely say to parents is yes has no meaning if no isn't an option. Yeah. And um, the, yeah. Absolutely. You have to be able to say no. So when you take this book, which presents these tools and also some case studies then of different, you know, like moments where they've been used and how that worked out, how does it work in different cultures? I know you've been doing classes based on the book also. So you you do have real interaction with people where you talk about the book, but also the tools. So can you talk a little bit about how it comes up in different cultures? There's so many common threads from culture to culture parents care about their kids. Parents worry that their kids aren't going to succeed when their kids are different. How all of that gets demonstrated and comes out varies from culture to culture. There's some cultures that are really rigid where there are, there are punishments for kids not fitting in and not doing the right thing. There are other cultures where they're much more emotional and there's this sort of histrionic like trauma drama about whatever it is that's going on and i am so grateful for the parents and the teachers and the medical doctors and the judges and everybody who comes to my classes that they're there because they're there because they're curious but they know that something else has to be possible for them and so I just, I create the classes based on the people that are there. And, and I, I, honest to God, I really have no point of view. I've heard some stories that would make other people cry and like straighten curly hair and like all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, so, so, so where do you, you want to go from here? I mean, that's what I do with kids who've been abused. Like I don't buy their stories. I don't like, they chose it for whatever reason. Okay. And where do you want to go now? It's like, hi. So in your, the way you see it, there's culture is like on top, but there's actually a universal fish a, <laughs> that yes. would like yeah. that would like to be able to be a fish, whatever right. culture you're in. It doesn't really matter. The culture doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And if you have the thing that I love about these access tools is that it doesn't matter what your culture is mm. and it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what your past has been and it doesn't matter what your present is. It just matters what you would like to do from here on out. And that's always been my approach with the kids. Like, where do you want to go? Do you want to stay here for a long time? Or do you want to get a family? Or do you want to go into group home or back in the day? Or do you want to go, you know, later? Do you want to go to college? Whatever. What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? I can help you do that. I can't choose for you, but I can teach you how to choose. Yeah. And you can assist. I can assist. I can so when you were a kid, like if you look back at when you were a kid, if if these tools had existed, if they were around at that time, would that have changed things for you? Oh, it would have changed things hugely for me. And, and probably like many people, I grew up in a home where there was a lot of craziness that went on and also where... I was acknowledged for who I was. So I'll tell you two stories. So my dad was a raging alcoholic who was just out of his mind when he drank and scary and like all that stuff. And my mom was the classic, nothing wrong here, boss. It's like, 
uh, actually there's a lot of bad wrong here. So there was that. And then, and then also my mom recognized these capacities that I have with kids. And one of the stories that, um, I don't know whether it's a story that I was told or whether I actually re- recall it at this point, but when I was four, I've always had an easy way with kids and with animals. And when I was four, we were at a picnic and there were twins babies that were screaming at the top of their lungs and nobody could comfort them. And my mom said, why don't you ask Anne to sit down on the grass and give the babies to her? And so the mom did and the baby stopped crying. So my mom would tell those stories too, in addition to nothing wrong here. So I grew up with both. You know what I mean? Like yeah. The, you got, you got acknowledgement for some things the, that you were being. Yeah. And you were there were also like the, the hiding on some of the like of the, the big elephant in the room. <laughs> I know. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So say somebody listening to this, mm-hmm. probably not the same situation. It's never the same. But if they're in a situation where they maybe the circumstances, or they have friends who have circumstances where the kids really are a fish that are being told they have to climb that darn tree, but they're actually a fish, you know, and they'd like to go swimming. So. Could you give them like one or two yes. tools to yeah. use? Yeah. So really brief story. 13-year-old, brilliant at math, comes in with his mom a month later. He's also a football player, quarterback, which is the big position hmm. in the United States. And um, his mom's mad because he's failing math in, in the eighth grade when he's always functioned several grades above. And I said, what's up? And he goes, my teacher hates me. And I said, tell me about your teacher. She hates me. And I said, is your teacher like you? No. Does she think like you? No. Can she keep up with you? No. Is she teaching you the way you learn? No. And I said, okay. Are you quicker than your teacher? Yes. Can you still learn the way you learn, even though she's trying to teach you a different way? And he sort of looks at me and I said, Yes or no? And he goes, uh-huh. And I said, all right, oh, here's the deal. Because he was failing math, he was putting his football career at risk yeah. because you cannot fail a uh, class and be in the sport. I said, do you want to still play football? He goes, yep. All right. And I said, all right, does your teacher want you to be somebody that you're not? And he said, yes. And I said, do not ever become somebody that you're not to please somebody. And... Would you be willing to pretend to be who she wants you to be without becoming it just so you can get your grades up so, you know, you can play football? And he goes, can I do that? And I said, I don't know, can you? <laughs> and that was the end of the session. And his mom called me two weeks later and said, thank you. He's passing. He doesn't like her any better, but he's quit fighting her. So like that. You well, don't... so that for me is a very pragmatic advice. So if you look at that, because I would say a lot of people would say, you should be you. That's what a therapist should say. And that's what you're supposed to say. So, so let's, so if we actually look at that. So when I was looking at some tools, so kind of like that is pragmatic advice that is meant to create what he truly desires. Right. First, you find out what's going on. Yep. What do you actually desire, and how can you get there? Right. Those are like and, the, and the main thing for the parent or the therapist is to have not a point of view about whatever it is that they say. Yeah, so how? I didn't care. I was curious. You went from, like, two grades above math to failing math. It's like, 
What's what that? occurred? What is that? So how does a parent get to that no point of view? Because you you can get to this because you're asking questions without having a point of view. What answer is going to give you? So what what is so if I'm a parent, which I actually am, to mm-hmm. a sixteen year old girl <laughs> that is in a you know what she can do with her life, and here comes school. And so what is the best way for me to have no point of view about my daughter? Like what would be one of the first tools to use? I would ask parents how many points of view their parents had about them hmm. and give them so that they get that. And then I would then ask them, what if you could treat your kids the way you should have been treated and not the way you were, which isn't a blaming thing at all. And it, and it just opens up the space. If yes. they, and, and here's another question that another tool that a lot of parents use which is, what if it weren't wrong, for example, for him to fail math? And then if it weren't wrong, what would it be? Right. So what if it weren't wrong creates enough space for the next question? If it weren't wrong, what would it be? Oh, he's not learning the way she's teaching. Oh, she's being mean to him because he's smarter than she is and quicker than she is, and she can't keep up with him, and he's making her look bad. Oh. So since he has the upper hand in terms of the brains and the speed, then what can he do to create it so that he can get a passing grade so he can play football? You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And those two are brilliant questions. And I know you use them a lot. So for you, they may seem very, like, because I would say, even I've done this for many, many years, and I've heard, even heard, like, what if... What if, what if you treated? Well, no. Let's oh. go to the first one first. Okay. So, the, what if, what if you were, tra- what if you treated your kids the way you should have been treated and not the way you were treated? Uh-huh. Now, my parents were kind people. They wanted well. Uh-huh. Like they, they were, you know, they were good parents, and they are good parents. Actually, my dad is still alive. And when I look at that question, if I look at, if I treated my daughter and I think I do in many ways, the way she should be treated, not the way I was treated. Mm -hmm. It depends on what would I like to create? Well, Mm -hmm. I would like to create a space for her to know that she has choice and that it's her choice to create whatever she liked to create in life. So how do I treat her if that's what I would like to create? So it opens up an enormous space to create something different. So that question is so brilliant. So I'd like everyone to take that with you. And then the second one you were saying, so if it's basically, what if, if this wasn't wrong, what would it be? Right. right. In, in like what if short, this weren't wrong? It's just, wait a minute. What if this yeah. problem or this thing weren't wrong? And then if it weren't wrong, what would it be? And it could be anything that's going on. If you have kids, like it could be anything that's going on with your kids. Like, what if it weren't wrong that he failed this? Or what if it weren't wrong that he likes to go out and party all night? Or what if it weren't wrong? Like, what would that it be? his best friend yeah. just was mean to him. Exactly. Right. Like, one thing that I look at with my, I have a teenage daughter, and one of the things that tends to, like, either you align and agree, or you resist and react to whatever's going on. And she definitely does that. It's mm-hmm. like a, but if that, if you, if you go to your question is that what if it weren't wrong mm-hmm. or right, mm-hmm. whatever is occurring, what would it be? It opens up for that space where it can actually continuously change. Because if I don't align and agree with what she says or resist and react, mm-hmm. she changes it. 
continuously. It's the funniest thing. She had this conversation with me the other day and she thought her best friend didn't like her anymore. She was convinced she didn't like her anymore. She hadn't heard from her and she didn't answer a text or something. And I was like, well, you know, a lot of people are mainly interested in themselves. Mm. It may not have anything to do with you that you didn't answer your text. And then I left it. And, you know, a few days went on and said, oh, now we're all good again. Mm. And I and I looked at that because if I had gone in either to learn and agree that this was a bad thing that the friend didn't text her back or resist and react and say, just text her again, you know, but I didn't even go to any of those places. Right. I'm like, well, you know, things happen in people's lives and it may not have anything to do with you. That's it may awesome. not be. But what I was so struck by was how things just, it allowed things to change by not solidify whatever point of view she had by just being that. So if this went wrong, what would it be? If this wasn't right, what would it be? Right. So. And you were actually being the energy of that, even though you weren't using the words. Yes. Was, yeah. And I realized that now when you said that, but I'm also realizing how, how these tools that is presented with what you're creating, but also in this book is allowing a completely different way of being with the children. Would yes. that be correct? Yeah, yeah. It, that is correct. And one of my favorite questions for kids and for parents is, well, so what do you know about your friend? Like in this yeah. instant, oh. what do you know about your friend? And then really to have no point of view about whatever they, it is. Well, she's mean because she didn't do this. Cool. So what else do you know about her? And what else do you know? And what else do you know? And the cool thing about that, and what else do you know? And what else do you know? And what else do you know? Is they'll get it. They'll get to whatever the it is. Brilliant. Yes. They do. And once they get it, it can never be taken away from them because it's theirs. Because it's what is the awareness that they, it's the knowing that whatever it is that they arrived at, that they actually know. And it, and it takes the, all of a sudden it becomes not personal all of a sudden the trauma drama disappears. And like you were talking about these pragmatic tools, it just becomes pregnant. It's just sort of a practical thing. It's like, Oh, okay. I don't know what's going on with your friends, with your daughter's friend. And I bet your daughter knows if you, if she were to be asked, so what else, what do you, what do you know about it? What else do you know? What else do you know? Yeah. And that, but that goes back again to what we were talking about previously about the empowering yes. of them to know what they know. Yeah. The empowering of your kids to be aware that they know, they know what so they know much. all the time. Yeah. You do not know they know. And that will, that will then create for their whole lives moving forward. And you know what, Kat? I also see adults and so many of the adults that I see have no clue about who they are, about what they know, because they were never asked questions as kids. They were told, you need to think this way. You need to behave this way. This is the right way. This is the wrong way. Make a good, make a good decision, right? Like all that stuff. And I think it's one of the reasons I love working with kids, because when you get them young enough, <laughs> you can really change uh, life trajectory quickly and easily and attractively, too, it, they, because they'll always have it somewhere in their world, even no matter what, right? Yeah. And it does change worlds. It sounds like such a small thing to ask somebody, what do you know? What do you know? And it is actually 
such a key, crucial thing for getting out of, you know, would you ask a fish to climb a tree? Because if they knew they're a fish, they wouldn't even attempt to climb the tree. They would find another way to get up there if they wanted to get up there. I mean, there are several ways to get whatever they want to go. So, but that knowing doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside. And so there's a few there that really... And I like the way you say, if you get them young. <laughs> it's true, though. Yes, you get them young. It it's like it expands on its own because once they know, they know. They right. know that they know. And, <laughs> and one of the things that kids are made to be is victims. Victims of abuse, victims of this, victims of that. And when I work with parents, there, there are some parents who actually create without thinking it through, but create their kid as a victim to prove the other parent wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in contested court cases and stuff like that. And what I say to them is you can do that if you want, you can actually create him as a victim, but what kind of women is he going to get involved with? And what are his bosses going to be like? And who are, who are his friends going to be? You can do that. Or what if we can teach him tools that he can use to manage people like this and to deal with them so that he can actually manage them. So his life doesn't have to be filled with all of these people. He can either choose them or not. Right? Yep. But really to empower empower kids. I've done a series of classes and telecalls and called, What is Your Job as a Parent? Mm. And it's so interesting what people come up with. But the deal, what if your job as a parent is to teach your kids to choose? I love that. That is amazing. And And that is such a, what if that's really the key part of your job? No matter how young they are, no matter how, quote, disabled they are, no matter what their past has been like, no matter who's saying what to them, no matter who's doing what to them. What if your job as a parent is to teach your kids to choose? And how do you do that? You ask questions. And you actually let them choose. And And you allow them to fail. And you allow them to fail, and you have no point of view about what they choose. And all all the way from a toddler or a baby crawling over to the stairs, like if you jump in, no, don't do that, right? They're the ones that fall down the stairs at some point. (laughs) But if you be the space for them, they don't tumble down the stairs. They get it. They like, they'll back around and they'll put a little leg down and then come back up and not do it or else they will. And they'll, you know, they just, so. So we're running to the end of the show here. And I wanted to ask you, these are tools that a lot of parents, what you just said, like (laughs) what, what your job as a parent is. I think that's one of the main questions as a parents we all have. Like I, when my daughter was born and she came into my life, I said, little small thing that suddenly popped out of me. And I'm like, what do I do now? What the bleep do I do now? I have no idea how to be a parent. We don't, we have what we learn from watching our parents being parents, Mm -hmm. but that's a very different space because you watch your parents being a parent from when you're a kid, when you don't really have what you require, like it's a different. So if, somebody listening to this would like to know and learn how to be a parent or would like to read this book. Where do you, where do they find the book? Where do they find you? My name is Anne with an E Maxwell, like the coffee. (laughs) And um, I have a page on the access website. So if you go to www.accessconsciousness.com, 
forward slash Ann Maxwell. That's where you find me with classes there. And then I also have a website that is www.annmaxwell. And then I have four initials after my name, LCSW. So it's three L's in a row. Mm-hmm. Ann Maxwell, LCSW.com. And I've got a whole website. And they could probably also search in the name of your book and they would yes, find you, right? Yes, there's yeah. a woman who lives in Shanghai who tracked me down. She hunted me down yeah. with the title of the book. Yeah, yeah no, I think me, so. If you don't remember any of those things, you remember the name of the book and you find Anne through there. Would you teach a fish to climb a tree? Question mark. <laughs> because right? it's a question. So. I really recommend this book. Maybe even you start with the book. And I, I recommend Anne's classes for anyone who's wondering, <laughs> what do I do? What do I do now when I'm a parent? Or what do I do now with these kids that I'm suddenly interacting with in all kinds of different ways? Because you could be a teacher. You could be somebody who works with kids as a coach or as a parent or in any other way where these kids will show up. The fish kids are everywhere. They're everywhere. I, can I just tell you a quick story? I yeah. was in Turkey in January, and I did a class called Parenting Done Different, I think. And after the class was, I did an intro. There were 400 people that came to that intro, like 200 live and 200 online. It was so fun. And the next day I did a class, and at, at the end of the day, this woman came running into the room. And she said, I'm a judge. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it turns out she actually is a judge of the Supreme <laughs> Court of Turkey. And she said, I want to talk to you about this program that I'm doing with kids. And I said, and we're having trouble finding families for them. And I looked at her and I said, do they want to have a family? Right? These are teenagers. And she burst into tears. And she said, oh, my God. I said, what if you ask them if they want a family or not? And if they don't want to... I mean, if they wanted a family, they would have chosen a family a while ago. But if they're out in the system, chances are good. They don't even want a family. Why don't you ask them what they want? And she said, oh, my God. Right? It's I don't know why I'm telling you that, that story. No, that, that, that is a the, beautiful story because that shows exactly what I mean. It's not just about parents and kids. No. It's about all these people in our world that interacts with kids in different ways. And that is actually such a... And start asking kids yeah. what you want. And even that question that you gave to her that she never even thought of asking, (laughs) do they want a family? Because we assume, conclude, and decide that they should have a family because that's what you should have in this reality. But what, like you say, if if they want to. If you're 17 years old and you don't have a family. Yeah. So I think that's a brilliant story to end the show with. And it shows how big this, this is and how truly for the future, This is how we change the future. We change how we interact with our kids. So thank you for coming on. I'm so grateful. And I would like to see your book in many, many more languages. So let's get it out there. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you so much. And bye, everyone.